afford anything, just not everything. Every decision that you make is a trade-off against something else, and that doesn't just apply to your money. That applies to your time, your focus, your energy, your attention, anything in your life that's a scarce or limited resource. And that leads to two questions. Number one, what matters most to you? And number two, how do you align your day-to-day decisions in a way that reflects that? Answering these two questions is a lifetime practice, and that is what this podcast is here to explore. My name is Paula Pant. I'm the host of the Afford Anything podcast, and today, Jeff Chrysler joins us to talk about how to stop making so many money mistakes. Jeff is the editor-in-chief of PeopleScience.com, a website that explores the ways in which we trip ourselves up when it comes to how we handle money. He's also the co-author of the book Dollars and Cents, along with Dan Ariely. Both his website and his book explore how and why we often get in our own way. We often are our own worst enemies when it comes to how we misthink money and spend in ways that often don't make sense. Jeff attended Princeton and used to be a lawyer before switching gears to become an author and speaker. We're going to spend the first half of today's conversation talking about the ways in which we trip ourselves up, and we'll spend the second half of the conversation talking about how we can save ourselves from ourselves. Here he is, Jeff Chrysler. Hey, Jeff. Hey, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I am still alive, as I like to say, so that's a good thing. That's perfect. That's better than the alternative. Jeff, I wanted to talk to you today about the ways in which we commonly trip ourselves up. I've heard from so many people in this audience who say, I'm trying to keep to a budget. I'm trying to only spend a certain amount, but I keep going over every month. Do I just lack willpower? Am I just a terrible person? Are they terrible people? Yes. (laughs) They are not terrible people. In fact, they are people. And people by their nature are flawed and irrational and Most importantly, they're emotional. And I think one of the things about financial decisions that we often don't accept as reality or we think is not true is just how emotional our financial decisions are. Money as this lure because it's there's numbers and decimals and you can put on a graph and then charts and there's data that we think it's just cold hearted decision making to do the right thing and it's easy. And the truth of the matter is that financial decisions, like all of our decisions in life, are driven by emotions. Um, That's sort of the underpinning of this field of behavioral economics, which I've been fortunate enough to be involved with now for some time, because we're emotional people. And when we don't know what the right thing to do is, we often fall prey to sort of traps and biases that are designed to make us go with the emotional flow, right? Do the easy thing, the thing that feels right. The easy example is sale prices, right? You would buy a shirt that was $100.00 but it's marked down to $60 more frequently than you just buy a $60 shirt because you have that easy comparison. You, you have that easy, good feeling of saying, oh, I'm saving $40 or that easy, you know, relative to a $100 shirt, a $60 shirt is a great deal. Whereas the challenge of figuring out what a $60 shirt itself is worth without that comparison is difficult. And we emotional beings don't want to do that. And I do want to just say one sort of broad thing for listeners, and that is, Everybody has a hard time when it comes to making financial decisions and that there should be no shame in that. Uh, And that's the first thing I often tell people is to not feel bad. I go and I speak to like wealth advisor firms, people that like tell folks with millions of dollars what to do with their money. And I always hear the story about the number one performer, the person who does best telling his or her clients what to do with their money makes the most mistakes him or herself with her own money. And I started to always wonder what that was. And I realized it's this emotions thing. 
when I am telling a client, you know, what to do for their retirement or their college saving funds, I look at the charts and the graphs and say, this is what you do for your kids and your future. Then when you turn it on me, right? So that's me. That's my future. Those are my kids or less dramatically. That's like my shopping experience and, and all those things there, it's emotional, it's personal. So I hope that if there's any takeaway from however long we talk today for your listeners, it's that it's okay to not know what you're doing, to make mistakes and to be human. And that's challenging, but a beautiful thing. Mm. When you talk about money being emotionally driven, oftentimes the connotation to the word emotion is is a very charged feeling that you might to a great extent feel angry or joyous or excited or sad. But on a day-to-day level, it seems as though a lot of our spending decisions are emotionally influenced, but those emotions are often subtle and not recognized or not consciously identified. Absolutely. I mean, that's the real challenge here. And, and one of the things that I hope that my work and the people that are smarter than I in this field can help people realize is that these emotions, it's not like we go and we're at a coffee shop and we start weeping with emotion and we say, give me a latte, right? It's these unconscious sort of hidden emotions that are really create these shortcuts for us, these decision-making shortcuts that are emotionally charged. I mean, look, we would be crippled if we were to face every financial choice and every choice in our life and really weigh all our options, right? I mean, the underpinning of any sort of money decision, financial decision, is this idea of opportunity costs, which I'm sure your audience, you have a smart audience, you know, but just real quickly, it's just the opportunity cost is when you spend money on something, what else could you spend it on now or any time in the future, right? Like Susie Orman's famous, don't buy the $5 latte every day is because that $5, you could, you know, put it in a compound interest bearing account and retire at age 17, right? Uh-huh. That was David Bach, by the way. I just have to throw that in there. Otherwise, uh, otherwise I'm going to get like 100 emails about it. I apologize to Susie. She can now resume dating me, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, the idea is that we weigh, like we're supposed to weigh all the possibilities. And my co-author on, on the, the book that I wrote, Dollars and Cents, and it was written with me by a man named Dan Ariely, who everyone here should go check out his other work. He took a group of his graduate students to a Honda dealership. They wanted to find out how people dealt with opportunity costs. And he asked people, so you're about to spend $30,000 on a Honda. What else could you spend that on, right? Like the opportunity costs. And people couldn't think of anything. And so they pushed them and they pushed them. And the most they got is people would say, well, if I don't spend 30000 on a Honda, I could spend 30000 on a Toyota. And that's not spending your money on something else. It's just a different brand. And that's because people have a hard time thinking about opportunity costs. They couldn't think, oh, $30,000, that's maybe you know, uh, retiring a year early or a few nice vacations or, I don't know, a few items from a hotel minibar. They couldn't think about opportunity costs because it's just hard to do. It's too much to expect all of us to be these calculating machines. So instead, what happens, and it's okay, is we find these shortcuts. The $5 latte every day, one, as a great example, at one point, we sat there and thought, oh, should I buy this latte? And we decided that we should. And then the next day, instead of thinking, oh, should we buy this latte? We remember that we did it yesterday. And that's an easy thing. And we say, hey, I'm a smart guy. I must have made the right choice. And so we do it again. And then the third day, we're like, well, two times in a row, I decided to buy a latte. I'm brilliant. And then eventually it just becomes this self-reinforcing thing that we keep doing because it's easy because like none of us want to go through our day questioning every decision. And that's okay. And again, my hope is that we start to see the patterns. We start to see the traps that we fall into. We start to find out which biases affect us. Um, Do we spend too much discretionary spending? Do we fall for brand items, sale prices, whatever it may be? 
And then once we see what trips us up, then we can create systems and environments so that we get the better outcomes. All right. So let's talk about that then. And we'll, we'll talk about both of those, recognizing what are some of the errors in thinking that trip us up. Well, let's talk about that first. And then after that, we can talk about how to develop systems to save us from ourselves. With regard to our errors in thinking, you've already talked about overvaluing sales and discounts. Can you talk a little bit more about that? There's an interesting example with JCPenney. Yeah. So the, the number one thing that people, I think, in my anecdotal experience fall for is sale prices. And this really has to do with what we call the principle of relativity. I'm careful not to get that confused with Einstein's theory of relativity. It's a different thing. That, as I described before, we end up comparing prices. And before I get into like too much of the weeds, the JCPenney story is, is really informative. So JCPenney, for those that don't know, it's a department store. It's around the country. Um, I, I think it might have started in the Northeast. But regardless, people go in there. And what JCPenney does is they have prices that are high, but then they also have a ton of sales. Sometimes it's a sign on a rack, and sometimes it's a flyer that's out there. Sometimes if, you know, you're a regular user. Like There's a sale price to everything. And they had all these loyal customers. Then JCPenney, at one point, they switched their, their CEO. And the CEO was like, this is ridiculous. Like Instead of making people jump through all these hoops and do all these things to get sale prices that end up being at the same price as our competitors, let's just list everything at the price that it's worth. There's no more sales. Let's just tell them what they literally called fair and square pricing. And we'll have the same as our competitors. And people, it just saves everybody time. And so they instituted this change and everybody hated it. They absolutely hated it. They left JCPenney and they went elsewhere. And finally, the company fired the new CEO. They brought in someone else and they reinstituted their sort of sale and discount policy. And people came back. From a rational perspective, it doesn't make any sense, right? You should just make your decision based upon is the price a good price? And if that $60 sweater is the same at JCPenney as it is at Sears, it shouldn't matter. Instead, though, JCPenney had the $100 sweater marked down to 60 and it worked and it got people loyal because people loved finding sales. They loved sort of the game. It was a dopamine rush when you felt like you accomplished something or you, or you won a little prize. And their whole model was based upon this idea of relativity that like giving people sales and, and creating quote unquote savings, people would be emotionally connected to the experience and become more loyal and therefore shop there for the $60 sweater when they could go elsewhere. And it worked. It got people connected to JCPenney because of this relativity. Relativity, basically what it does is it gives you, like I said, hinted at earlier, it gives you a shortcut. Right? Instead of sitting there and, and looking at the $60 sweater and saying, what's the opportunity cost? Right? What's this really worth to me? And doing this hard calculation. Instead, you look at it and say, oh, the $60 sweater is a much better deal than the $100 sweater it used to be. And so right there, in a snap of the fingers, you get your choice. You make a value judgment based just upon 60 versus 100 instead of 60 versus anything else in the world. And that's what we love. We love the easy solution that feels good. So I have two questions about that example. The first is, is that an issue about the way in which people evaluate their spending decisions? Or was it a branding issue in that JCPenney had already selected for the types of customers who were prone to loving sales? And the reason that I ask that is because when you describe that fair and square pricing, I think about immediately, I think about Trader Joe's and Carvana, both of which are businesses that have implemented the fair and square, no sales, no discounts, no gimmicks, 
this is what the price is and that's that. And both of those companies have done well with it. So is it just that the brand needs to be established like that from the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I think from a business perspective, that was the mistake that they made. I mean, if, if they had suddenly launched a new company called JCPenney 2, or, you know, it, it had come out as this is our thing, as we're fair and square pricing, then it would have been different. But they had got all these people, all their loyal customers were used to having a certain experience. The shopping experience isn't just how much money goes out of my bank account and what products do I leave with. It's a literal experience. And a lot of that involved the emotional connection and the emotional satisfaction of finding sale prices. So the fact that they changed that, that they were established as one, then changed to something else and, and changed back, that was a, the problem with this particular business example. Mm. And it sort of is both of your ideas. That's the business example for the specific case study. And that's all underpinned by like how people make valuations of, of what something's worth. Hmm. And so my second question about that is, so with the JCPenney example, that seems to be a clear example of a time in which a CEO said, hey, we're not going to try to trick you. We're going to try to be more transparent. And that attempt backfired. But then on the flip side of that, you have all of this talk now about like dark nudges and people find out that Uber, for example, sends its drivers an update of the next ride before their current ride is finished in order to try to gamify them into accepting more and more rides. And when people find out about that, on one hand, it sounds like people think those dark nudges are shady. But then on the other hand, with the JCPenney example, when companies try to do away with that, it seems to be a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Yeah, this is a kind of a Pandora's box of of a topic, but it's an important one as the field of behavioral science grows and, and nudging grows. And Richard Thaler, who uh, recently won the Nobel Prize in the field, he would call dark nudges, they refer to him as sludge as opposed to nudge. And he has a really interesting framework for approaching it from the, the design angle. So if you are the Uber or the JCPenney and you're thinking about this, and, and, and his framework is basically that you know for a nudge to be fair and ethical. It needs to be transparent. It needs to be opt-outable. And it needs to be designed in a way that's really for the end user's best interest. JCPenney was transparent about what their, you know, their sale price is. Like they didn't make it seem like they were hiding something. It was, here's the price and here's the sale. And it was something that people could opt out of. They could leave. Was it for the best interest of the customer? Maybe. Um, that's debatable. Some of the things that Uber does and some of these other companies, it's not as clear that they fall into and they satisfy those sort of three elements. And I think that's why things get rubbed the wrong way. I mean, there's it's an interesting time because there's a lot of companies, more and more companies that are adopting sort of behavioral science and they're not always doing it, I think, in the best long-term interest of their customers or them themselves. I mean, this is the ethical challenge, whether it's about behavioral science or it's about you know CEOs and fudging the numbers for their quarterly earnings. It's always been an issue like long-term versus short-term. And you can always design like an app or a product that gets people addicted and gets them to, to spend and stick with it forever. But once that breaks, they're going to not be loyal. They're going to, once they find out what's happening, they're going to be disappointed. I mean, you think about casinos. Casinos are an entire experience designed around keeping people trapped and spending money and, and emotional and literally gamifying, as you mentioned with the thing, to keep people pumping in quarters. But then once that spell is broken, most people walk away from a casino and they don't feel good. They're not necessarily in a rush to come back. And the same can happen with a product or service, whether it's a, a small company or something like an Amazon or an Uber. 
it's a, a fine line to walk. Again, as I said, this, this is Pandora's box, so I'm sort of wandering around, feeling my way around the box. But I was speaking with someone earlier, and we, you know, we just went through the shopping season, and I'm sure plenty of listeners used Amazon.com because it, they had free shipping. Well, no, they didn't have free shipping. They paid for Prime. They paid $100 a year for shipping. And even if you bought 100 items on Amazon, that's still a dollar an item. But it felt free. You know, Amazon also, they had the one-click shopping, so it eliminated the friction. I mean, these are all sort of behavioral nudges to make us feel good and feel like that's the way we want to do it. We got to shop on Amazon. We're not going to shop on, you know, the, whether it's the local store or somewhere else. So I often use Uber as an example of another one of the principles that people fall for. At this point, I'll just say, you know, they have a really bad reputation when people like stop and get in a conversation about Uber and how they treat their drivers and, and all these things. People like, they just don't like Uber as a company, but they end up loving to use a product because it just triggers all these emotional responses and they make it it makes it so easy and it's literally right in your hand and whether that's good or bad is a bigger conversation if you know the convenience is to overcome sort of corporate questionable behavior but what you're asking is the important question for our field going forward is what are the ethics that are driving and and is is short-term sort of extracting customers worth the long-term damage and i would argue it's not Mm -hmm. uh, but some might argue it is we got dark and deep for a second (laughs) we did Going back to the Amazon example that you gave, that strikes me as an example of another common money mistake that people make, which is separating the pain of paying from the experience of the purchase. Exactly. The pain of paying is, if you were to ask me, what are the one or two big money mistakes? One would be the sale prices, the relativity, and there's more layers to that than we touch on. The other is the idea of the pain of paying, especially as financial technology and the way we pay for stuff is evolving rapidly. And just to back up, the pain of paying reflects this finding that when we pay for something, when we like hand over a $20 bill at a counter, it stimulates the same region of our brain as physical pain does. And if your listeners maybe stop and think about those moments when they've handed over cash, like, yeah, there's a little bit of a tug, like you may be getting something returned, but you feel the loss of that that money. Now, pain, like from a human evolution, uh, biological standpoint, it serves a purpose, right? Pain's supposed to make us stop and pay attention to what's happening. You put your hand on a stove and that, that burn makes us look at our hand and decide, oh, we should move it away. The same thing should be what happens with a financial decision. That pain of paying should make us stop and think, hey, is this the right decision? A very like egghead way, like weigh the opportunity costs. That's what we should do. But what ends up happening in our modern world is instead of feeling that pain, we numb the pain. We use devices that make it so we don't actually feel it. In Amazon's case, right, one you see an item that you want, you can hit one click, and they've already stored your credit card. You don't have to think of it. Just hit one little button on your thing, and it's coming to your house. That's not a painful process. So you don't stop and have that moment of thinking, should I spend it? The big culprit or the big example that, that is, is most common is really credit cards. And nowadays, people don't use credit cards. It's on their phones. Because credit cards, they numb that pain of paying. They're not handing over cash. In many ways, they harness the two elements of the pain of paying. One is the time between when you consume a product or service and when you pay for it. And if you think about with a credit card, say you go out to dinner and you pay with a credit card, you're not actually paying right then. You're signing a promise to pay later. And then later comes and you're not really consuming. This is for something you had like three weeks ago. And so there's all this time between it. And the more time there is between a decision and the consequences of that decision, the less that we really stop and evaluate the worth of that choice and and what we should be doing. And credit cards also, 
in addition to the the time, they also harness sort of just our awareness, uh, what's often called the saliency. It's not quite a casino chip where we don't feel like we're spending any money at all, but it's close. It's a little piece of plastic and we don't pay attention to it. It doesn't feel like money. People, there are so many studies about credit cards that show that when we use credit cards, we don't remember how much we pay. We don't remember how much we tip. We just sort of forget so much about it, like almost instantly after doing it. And, you know, there's a whole spectrum developing about what's most painful payment and what's least painful. And, and, you know, the less painful it is, the more likely we are to make less conscious and less thoughtful decisions, right? Cash is the most sort of painful. And a lot of people, financial advisors, you know, if you're having trouble with your spending, they'll say, take a month and just spend cash. That's not totally practical all the time, but it drives home the point that you do that, you're going to start being more careful with your spending. So cash is most painful, then it's like checks and debit cards and credit cards. And now it's easy pass and automatic bill pay and, and all this financial technology. You can wave your phone or your watch. You know, there's even like facial scanning stuff. Like it's, it's crazy how easy it is to pay. Um, and they, these products are marketed as it's easy to pay, but that makes it easy to pay. And it makes it less thoughtful and less painful. And yeah, that's convenient, but it will often make it so we're not as conscious and thoughtful about our choices. And I should say, you know, like I come at a lot of this from the perspective of sort of how they're out to get you, if you will, how these principles are, are sort of used against us or we fall prey. And I think that's often what happens. But at the same time, we can use these for good. You know, we can be aware of the pain of paying and we can use it to make it so it's automatic and painless to save, right? Like automatic deductions for our 401k, like the default savings that companies have instituted over the last 10 or 15 years have increased people's savings rates dramatically because it's not painful. There's products like Acorns. I'm sure your listeners have heard of Acorns where if you have a savings goal and you spend money, it automatically rounds up and it puts that spare change into a savings account for you. That makes it painless and, and it does good things. The key again, as I hinted at earlier, is like we, we need to be conscious of the fact that the pain of paying or the lack thereof is being used for or against us and then have it be at our discretion whether or not we sort of dial that pain up or dial it down. Hmm. When you talk about the gap between the time in which we pay and the time in which we actually use that product, you gave the example of credit cards. Do debit cards have that same effect? They do, but not as strongly as credit cards. What we found is that because debit cards are connected to our checking account, they're actually like taking money away from us as opposed to promising to pay money later. Uh, and it's a, it's a subtle difference, but there are a couple things at play there. And, and forgive me if I get too mm -hmm. in the weeds. One is this idea of loss aversion, which is another behavioral principle, the idea that we feel a loss much more strongly than we feel an equal gain. For instance, losing $10 that bad feeling is only overcome by gaining $20. So the loss of money feels much more strong to us. So if we're, in this case, taking money away from ourselves using a debit card, we're taking money that we have already and removing it, that is much more painful to us in many ways. And we feel it much more strongly than promising to pay money later. How salient is that to a person who has internalized the idea that their credit card balance is a big minus on their balance sheet. Everyone, depending on their perspective, it can change the weight that these different principles and biases have. I mean, that's what I would hope people would strive to do. So if you're a person who your credit card balance is something that you're very aware of, then using a credit card will be more painful perhaps than, than a debit card. 
what most studies of the most recent things I, I've seen suggest is that when we think about our discretionary spending, the money that we have to spend, we often think about our checking account. And that's what we see on our ATM receipt. And that's what our debit card is connected to. So we're more aware of our checking balance than we are our credit card balance. Our checking balance is something we see when we pay our bills. It's something that like we're just more conscious of. That's where our paycheck goes into our checking account. And so most people are more aware of the account that's connected to that debit card. So that's why you're more conscious of the pain there than a credit card balance, which again is like, it's not taking money away from you. It's money you're promising to pay later. That said, if there are listeners out there that are like on top of their credit card, that's amazing. That's great. And I can't in good conscience suggest everyone become obsessive and try to always know that. But if you know that, that's immensely helpful. Oftentimes when I give talks, I'll, I'll ask you know, people to raise their hands if you use credit cards and the whole room raise their hand. And then I say, okay, now keep your hand up if at the end of the month, you know exactly what your credit card balance will be. And I would say maybe 1% of the thousands of people I've spoken to know that. So most people don't, but if they do, good on you, as the Aussies might say. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. The weather is getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to T-shirts and shorts. Of course, when you go to work, you can't wear like a sloppy. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what your dress code is at work, but you might not want to wear a sloppy T-shirt and pair of shorts. You want to be well pulled together, look good, look professional. And so Quince can provide you with a lineup of really high quality, timeless pieces that are incredibly affordable. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than many similar brands. And they're ethically made. Quince only works with factories that use ethical and responsible manufacturing processes. And what they do is that by virtue of partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and then passes those savings directly onto us. So if you're looking for professional, high quality, durable, we're not talking about fast fashion here. We're talking really, really high quality pieces, articles of clothing that are also affordable. That's what you get with Quince. I have four cashmere Mongolian sweaters from them. The first two they comped, the, the second two I bought myself. And in terms of warmer weather, they also have washable silk tops. They have European linen dresses. They have blouses and shorts starting from $30 and so much more. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash Paula for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Paula to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash Paula, P-A-U-L-A. All right. So what are some of the next really big goals that you're saving for? Maybe you're saving for a down payment on a home. Maybe you're saving to buy your next car in cash or to at least make a pretty big down payment on your next car. Maybe you're saving for a kid's college fund or for your own college fund. Well, there's an app called Monarch that makes it easy to help you reach your financial goals. In fact, the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com Paula. Monarch has a very simple, intuitive design, 
They have loads of built-in features that help you collaborate with your spouse or partner, with your financial advisor. You, know, you can invite them to your account at no extra cost. They'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. You can customize it to look exactly like you want it to look like. You can customize the types of notifications that you get. You know, I've set mine up so that I only see the big ticket stuff. I personally don't want to see the little things. I just want to see big ticket items. So I've set up my notifications accordingly. But you can do it however you prefer. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can make it your own. And Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Paula for your extended 30-day free trial. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search, it's to match. And you can do that with Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform that has over 350 million global monthly visitors. It allows you to schedule, screen, and message so that you can connect with candidates faster. And beyond just hiring faster, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, which means Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Whenever I hire somebody inside of Afford Anything, I'm doing so because we are already overloaded with work. We have way too much on our plates, and so we need to hire so that somebody can start taking some of that stuff off of our plates. But hiring itself is added workload on top of already busy workload. So it's great to have a platform like Indeed that helps you hire faster and find higher quality matches. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Paula. Just go to Indeed.com slash Paula right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Paula. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's talk about some of the other common money mistakes that people often make. You've mentioned uh, in your book, overvaluing what you own is a common mistake. Yeah. So there's something called the endowment effect. This idea that when we possess something, just the mere act of possession makes it more valuable to us. The fascinating study, I mean, there are a few, but it was about like mugs. They had mugs from a college store. I think it was Duke. Don't quote me on that. But people that literally held the mug in their hand valued it more highly than people that didn't. And it was the same mug, but it was just a matter of like connecting to it and having that be something that you possess. You know, on, on a grander scale, when you're selling a home, you value the home you've lived in and everything that's associated with it and the life that you've had there much more than someone who might buy it. And that's not just a matter of negotiating, you know, sell high and buy low. It's just as objectively as science has been able to measure the fact that you have other value connected to it beyond financial, you, you sort of conflate with the financial value. So yeah, the endowment effect is connected to what I mentioned earlier, this idea of loss aversion. Because once you own something, when you give it up, you're going to feel that loss more. So the idea of giving up a house or a mug that is connected to you is going to feel more painful than it would otherwise by virtue of just owning it. It's really like the whole driving force behind drug dealers. The first one is free. 
Right? Once you're addicted, once you've been connected to something, suddenly you're going to value it a lot more. And this can impact our financial decision making on, on choices big and small. And sometimes it's a matter of like not being able to leave a brand, even if there's a better brand out there. You know, you're a Starbucks coffee drinker, but you could save a dollar a day if you started drinking Pete's that's right next door and even closer to your office than the Starbucks is. But you're not going to give up because the value just by being connected already is great. It's why loyalty programs work because you become connected to a product or service. It's pretty powerful. And again, like many of these things, it's very unconscious. A lot of people don't stop and say, I'm overvaluing this product because I'm connected to it. But that's what we're doing. Mm. And so that has clear implications for future spending because it can trigger you to spend more than you otherwise would need to to get comparable value. Yeah, absolutely. And look, there, I mean, the, the challenge is many of these things, something like endowment, you know, this idea is, is a good example, is there's not a, a cold bottom line that like spending the least amount of money is the best thing to do. Sometimes the value to you as a person is worth it. Sometimes that good feeling of being like loyal and having a product that you really like can be worth it. Again, though, it's are you making that decision consciously or are you being tricked into it? You know, if over the course of a year, you're going to spend $100 more drinking Starbucks and you actually do feel good about it, you might get more than $100 worth of value out of it. But it's when you're just doing it unconsciously because you've sort of been tricked by these emotional shortcuts. That's when, when I think it's a problem. What's another example of a common trigger for a money mistake that people often make? I would say another big one is something I hinted at when I mentioned Uber, and that's how we often overpay for effort or the expression or show of effort. People will pay more for a locksmith who takes an hour to open their door and they swear and sweat and break stuff and have to go back and forth to his or her truck a hundred times. They'll pay more for that than the locksmith that opens a door in one minute because they see all this effort. And they're like, oh my God, it's, you work so hard. When in truth, you're paying for incompetence. What matters to you should be, how quickly can I get into my home? But that's a hard thing to calculate is what's the value of getting to my home in, in a minute. So instead, we jump to what the effort is. And this translates into a lot of ways that now products and services are being designed because some places show effort and some don't, right? Kayak and even Domino's Pizza organizations and, and online services show a progress bar, right? That's showing you the effort that they're making. And so we value that more. Uber, again, is this great example Uber, what do you do? You open the Uber app and they make the effort to geolocate you. They see where you are and they see a bunch of cars around you. And you press a button and they, they select a car just for you. And then you watch the car slowly but surely creep down the street to get you. And study after study shows when we're waiting for something, whether it's like checking into a conference or waiting for a car to come, when we're waiting and we see the effort that's being made, we see people scurrying about or we see a progress bar, we underestimate how long we've waited and we overestimate the value of that product or service. It's something called operational transparency because they're showing you this effort. It's hard to value, like, what's it worth to me to wait three minutes for a ride two miles from here? But they're showing you, they're giving you this emotional shortcut so you can see what it's worth. People that are companies and services that are bad at this, you know, typically creative services, you know, like writers and, and artists and, and folks who, you know, might perform for an hour People think that it's the only an hour of work when it's a lifetime of work. And then there are others. I mean, the word artisanal, which is one of my most hated words. I've seen, I've saw an artisanal hammer once listed. Like it's everywhere because artisanal says handmade and handcrafted and special effort put into this. And it's designed that way to trigger this sense of like, oh, it's really 
unique. You, know, you go to an expensive restaurant and they describe, you know, like how the cow that your steak is from was raised and what her name was and all this stuff. And it's like, it's there to show you how special, how much effort was put into us. And again, like, lest I seem like someone who's, who's coming and saying like pinch every penny, sometimes going to an expensive restaurant and you're surrounded by candlelight and wine and someone with a French accent spends an hour describing a steak. Like that's an experience that could be worth it. As long as I feel like, as long as we are conscious, that's what's happening. We're not just getting fooled into paying, you know, $40 for a hamburger because someone's describing it as thus. Hmm. And this is why so many companies are now showing the behind the scenes. That's like a whole, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. This is mere speculation on my part, but I, I sometimes wonder if the open kitchen concept that so many restaurants have adopted, I don't know if you have a lot of foodies with you, if everyone there is eating ramen every day till they retire, um, <laughs> but open restaurants where you're like, you see they work in the kitchen, whether intentional or not, that's part of what it does is it shows you how much work is going on. Now there's a whole conversation like, is that a nicer experience than, you know, a quiet restaurant with the violin music? And there are other reasons to have it and all that. But one of the things it shows, it shows you all of the, the effort that's going in. Yeah, it's many industries are adopting that. I have been curious about knowing how many of that did it consciously because of this idea of, of operational transparency and how many of them have, have sort of stumbled into that as a as an added benefit. Mm. You've also talked about, you know, speaking of foodies and artesian, this and that and the other, about how the use of very flowery language often prompts people to overpay. Yeah. So flowery language, the example I often use is describing wine. I don't know if any of your listeners have ever gone to like a, a vineyard for a tasting. It's a great experience, but they often describe the wine for like hours. It does two things. One is it will trigger this thing we just mentioned about this effort. The other thing it does is, is flower language, it, it raises our expectations for what we're going to get from the product or service. You know, the more you hear something described, I mean, in some ways, this also works with the endowment idea, like the more you're invested in it, the more that you're going to expect it to be a good experience, the more that you're going to feel like it's worthy of your time and money. And language can do that. I mean, language can trigger so many emotions. It's why there are writers and performers and poets. So the more that it's a, an elaborate description, the more likely that it's going to be uh, also highly priced. And again, that can be something that you want. Like some people would love to have an elaborately described cheeseburger. Others don't care. But I find myself sort of being aware if I'm in a setting where somebody is suddenly describing in flowery language, how special something is. I'm like, look, I just want to buy the newspaper. I don't need to hear about <laughs> all the other aspects. Just wanted toenail clippers. Exactly. Please, sir, give me your CVS coupon with 500 pages. <laughs> we'll return to the show in just a moment. When it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I didn't know how to optimize what was in my wallet. So I didn't know how to optimize how to use travel rewards to pay for vacations. But now I've got a new card with more miles and I'm getting business class upgrades. I'm getting lounge access. I'm getting all kinds of perks that I didn't even know that I was missing out on. What could future you do with more travel rewards? 
a hotel upgrade, lounge access, wherever you go next. Make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Happy Way Day. Okay, so the Way Day sale is happening now, and today is the last day. Today, May 6th, the last day. You can get up to 80% off site-wide during Wayday. Wayday is Wayfair's biggest sale of the year. Now, if you aren't familiar with Wayfair, oh, have I got something you're going to love. Because Wayfair is the place where you can shop for everything home, from sofas to beds to dining sets, art, rugs. I just got some shelving for my bathroom. I have in my living room a daybed from them. My kitchen stools come from Wayfair. They have a great selection, super affordable, lots of variety. And right now, today is the last day of Wayday, which is their biggest sale of the year. So you can get thousands and thousands of huge deals site-wide up to 80% off. Plus, they have 12-hour flash deals. Again, it only happens May 4 through 6. And you can find a massive selection of home goods, appliances, stuff for the patio, stuff for the deck. It could be for your home. It could be for a rental property. It could be a Mother's Day gift. It could be whatever you're looking for. Plus, get free shipping on just about everything. Don't miss Wayfair's biggest sale of the year to get everything home. Head to Wayfair.com now to shop Wayday for three days only. That's Wayfair, W-A-Y-F-A-I-R.com. Wayday ends May 6th. Visit Wayfair.com slash shipping for exclusions. So we've talked about a series of errors in thinking that can lead to not spending, you know, in the way that we would optimally prefer to do. What are some systems that we can create or processes that we can use in order to save ourselves from ourselves? Sure. That's a great question. And and I would answer one with a general approach and, and two with some specific ideas. Uh, and maybe I'll actually do this in reverse. And the specific ideas have to do with if you identify which of these sort of traps you most commonly fall into. That's the first big step. If you spend too much on shoes or you spend too much discretionary spending every month or you always buy the brand name item when you could buy the same item that's the CVS brand, the generic. Like if you identify your problems, that's going to be the first big step. And then you can have a very specific approach to how you make better decisions. And the key to this in any context is to make stuff sort of automatic. When it's about changing habits, don't make it so that every day you have to stop and think, oh my gosh, I need to eat healthy today. Oh my gosh, I need to spend better today. Just change your systems and your environment so that the, the better choices are automatic. Because again, this emotional stuff we talked about, what's so powerful about it is that it's unconscious and it's easy. And if you can create an environment that's unconscious and easy to get to the right choice, that's going to serve you well. As a specific example, you know, when we talk about folks who tend to spend too much on their monthly discretionary spending, recall earlier I, I mentioned how we often judge how much money we have to spend based upon our checking account. So one thing we can do, one sort of one-time trick we can play on ourselves that has impact is if we get automatic deposits from our we have a regular job, God bless you if you have a regular job. And you know, normally it, it, it's deposited into our account, we can ask our HR department, say, hey, listen, can you put 
$200 a week into just a savings account. I don't mean like your 401k, a savings account that is easy to set up and you can get the money if you want it, but it's a different account than your checking account. Suddenly we've hidden $200 a week from ourselves. And when we look at our spending each week, when we look at our ATM receipt that's on our checking account or our debit account, we're going to think we have less money to spend and we're going to slow down our spend and we're going to only hit that limit. And what we found is that people then don't spend as much. Again, that money is still there. That $200 that's been put aside, it's still there if you need it, but it requires a step or two to get there. And often that step or two, that pain of paying will make us stop and think about what we're doing and make better choices. And all that requires, it's creating a whole new system. It requires going to your HR department once and saying, hey, can you set this up? And they will, if they're decent people, say yes. That's one specific example. On a sort of bigger picture level, I often reflect upon this idea that I mentioned with credit cards that like the time between a decision and the consequences of the decision can make a big difference, particularly when you think about the biggest spending and saving issue that we have, which is like saving for the future, for retirement and everything. There's, there's so much time between now and our retired self that we just, future Jeff is a different person than present day Jeff. I'm doing a very short version of why self-control is a problem, why we don't save. But, but one of the core things that we don't feel the consequences of our decisions when it comes to saving. We don't feel the negative impact of having spent too much right now at the detriment to saving for later. And if that is sort of the core underpinning of most people's money mistakes is spending too much now when we want to spend it later, then what I often talk about doing is making the consequences specific, personal, and visible. When we try to make the consequence on the specific, like the more details we have when we think about the future, to the extent that we stop and think about our retired selves, people find when you think about the specific date of retirement, as opposed to you know retiring in 40 years, you think about where you want to live and if you have kids and what your health might be and what your hobby is going to be and you know what are your different items, the more you can make the future concrete the more you connect to it and the more you're going to behave in a way that is responsible for that future self. Sometimes it's not retirement, right? I want to save money so I can go on a trip to Iceland next fall. The more you are daydreaming about that trip, the more you're thinking about the specifics of that trip, the more connected to you become and the more you're going to be able to overcome your lack of self-control to make better decisions today to benefit that Iceland trip. So the more you can be specific about it, the better. In a similar way, the more you can make the consequences of your decisions personal and you can connect them. You know, we talked about holding a mug, right? That becomes part of your person. It becomes part of sort of who you are. And so the more you can think about whether it's retirement and how that affects me or decisions, how it might affect your children if you have kids or how it like impacts your life, the more you're going to connect to it and feel responsible to the good outcome. Oftentimes it's the, the bad outcome, the spending now, the emotionally tempting stuff that leads us to respond because we're emotionally connected to that. But if we can make that other choice more personal and more specific, it matters. And the final element that I, I think is powerful is making good decisions, making saving and investment decisions, making them visible. And what I mean by that is if you stop and think about spending versus savings as sort of the two, I don't know, two sides of a teeter-totter, I guess, but the two options, we see spending, right? We see uh, our neighbor's new clothes and new car, um, we see the good food that we're eating. like, And by its nature, that drives us to be competitive, right? FOMO and keeping up with the Joneses. Like we compete on the stuff that we see. And that's stuff that feels measurable and tangible. We never really talk about or see 
savings or investing. That stuff is invisible. In fact, more than it being invisible, like when you save money for the future, what do you see now? You see less, right? Like, you know, if you're living in, in, in a scarcity, so if you're barely getting by and you put aside $50 a week, that's less food on your table, right? Maybe we don't feel it as much if we have a little bit more abundance, but you know, we don't see the benefits of that. And there's some fascinating studies showing that when we find ways to make savings visible and tangible, to make the good choices obvious to us, it triggers like our identity. I think part of the success of like this FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early, is that what it is? Is this identity, right? You've created this identity of like, I'm doing something now for my future. And if you can make the, find a way to make that visible and tangible, you're going to be more connected to making good financial decisions. The study that I often talk about, again, my co-author did this thing where they went to Africa and they had people save and it was a surprise result to them. But the device that made people save the most wasn't like text messages. It wasn't family triggering. It wasn't emotional. It was a little coin where each week if someone saved money, they would scratch off this coin and they put it on their mantle. And what that did is just showed the family that, yeah, we have a little bit less food this week, but that's because of this thing that we're doing. And you know, there's a survey that was sort of the thing that pushed me over the edge and made me decide I had to write this book. It was a survey that said men in America were more willing to talk about whether or not they use Viagra than how much they save for retirement. And like, what's more embarrassing, your little teeny tiny ineffective savings account or <laughs> this other issue? And it's just, it's so indicative of how the good choices, and this is a, this is a big social statement too, not just financial, but the good choices are often the ones that aren't rewarded and aren't part of our competitive culture and aren't seen. And so if you can find a way to make the good choices visible, whether that's about your discretionary spending or about not falling for brands or whatever it is to reward yourself by showing you're making the right thing, you're going to connect to it and your identity will slowly but surely change as someone who makes better financial choices. Mm. And also, if you can just listen to me babble about financial decision-making over and over, just hit this repeat. (laughs) over and over again and support your sponsors. And that's going to be the way to do it. There might be something to that. Repetition's going to really drill it into people's minds. Exactly. Especially because if you play this at two times speed, which some people do with audio stuff, mm-hmm. I secretly make you all send me money via PayPal. So go ahead and do that. <laughs> Hypnosis. I don't know if you realize that was a level that we were like, oh, someday. I bet there's somebody doing that. There's some algorithm out there making people do that. Secretly send them money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and if the money is already just in your PayPal account, not in your checking account in the first place, then, mm-hmm. or in your Venmo account, but not in your checking account in the first place, then it doesn't even feel like real money. It's not. It's to, it's play money. How many people send people Venmo, go out to dinner, and then they Venmo send me some money, and they say, hey, that's for the drugs I bought. That's fun, right? That's not real money. And that's what's fascinating about Venmo. It's almost like the casino poker chips of money. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's another area we can get to, this idea of mental accounting that that our money, depending on like the source and the account and the use of it, it feels different, right? Like people treat a bonus, a year-end bonus differently than they do the same equivalent of a raise, right? Like a raise that you get every month, you treat like more responsibly a bonus, you splurge. Well, thank you, Jeff. Where can people find you if they'd like to learn more? A few places. One is I would invite them to check out peoplescience.com. It's a website that I run that's about this behavioral science, and it's not just about financial decision-making, but it's about habits and loyalty and, and design and, and motivation, and it, and it takes what I was lucky to write about in the book, and it expands it and applies it more broadly. And I, I share the ideas of people a lot smarter than me, and I'm really proud of the work we do there. 
Uh, and the other thing is you can always check me out, Jeff Chrysler, K-R-E-I-S-L-E-R, um, jeffchrysler.com. My Twitter is Jeff Chrysler. All my social stuff, I don't do Instagram. I'm too old for that, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but just Jeff Chrysler is a good way to track me down. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. What are some of the key takeaways that we got from today's conversation? I'm going to review five common ways that we make money mistakes, followed by four solutions that can help us save ourselves from ourselves. Here we go. Number one, beware of falling for sales prices. I see this frequently with people who are new to frugality or who are new to the financial independence movement, and they're thinking about various ways to save money for the first time. It can be easy to jump to the conclusion that, oh, if I shop deals and discounts, if I only shop sales, if I never buy anything at full price, that means that I'll be saving money. Meh, not necessarily. Sometimes a sale or a deal or a discount can give you the thrill of winning, the thrill of a good deal. And that thrill either prompts you to spend more than you otherwise would by buying items that you otherwise would not have bought, or it gives you that dopamine rush, that excitement of having scored a great deal. So you keep going back to the same retailer, not realizing that you could get that same comparable item at the same price or maybe even less from a different retailer that doesn't give you an advertised sale. Instead of sitting there and looking at the $6 sweater and saying, what's the opportunity cost, right? What's this really worth to me? And doing this hard calculation. Instead, you look at it and say, oh, the $60 sweater is a much better deal than the $100 sweater it used to be. And so right there, in a snap of the fingers, you get your choice. You make a value judgment based just upon 60 versus 100 instead of 60 versus anything else in the world. And that's what we love. We love the easy solution that feels good. Every November on Black Friday, when all of the, basically every company out there is advertising some type of a deal or a discount or some Black Friday, Cyber Monday special, I always put up a post on Instagram where I say, hey, you know what? You can save 100% by just not buying anything. So don't forget, there's nothing frugal about saving 50% on an item that you wouldn't have purchased in the first place had it been full price. So beware of overvaluing sales and discounts and deals. That is key takeaway and money mistake number one. Number two, beware of ignoring the opportunity costs of a particular purchase as a result of mentally earmarking a certain batch of money to go towards a certain type of purchase. So, for example, you might mentally earmark 30 grand as the money that you're going to spend on a car. And then you start comparison shopping between different types of cars, overlooking the idea that if you only spent 20 grand on a car instead of 30, then that $10,000 difference could fully fund your Roth IRA and your HSA, and you'd still have money left over. So you're about to spend $30,000 on a Honda. What else could you spend that on, right? Like the opportunity costs. And people couldn't think of anything. And so they pushed them and they pushed them. And the most they got is people would say, well, if I don't spend 30000 on a Honda, I could spend 30000 on a Toyota. Now that's not spending your money on something else. It's just a different brand. Likewise, let's say you're negotiating on a car or on a house, and you're thinking in terms of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. In that type of a negotiation, it can be easy to let 200 bucks slide because what's 200 bucks in the context of spending 20 grand or 30 grand on a car? 
proportionately it seems like a small amount, and yet you might on that same day carry coupons into the grocery store in order to save $7 off of your $75 grocery purchase because proportionately that feels large. But framing these expenditures as proportions distracts us from the fact that there is real opportunity cost in that $7 or that $200, and that opportunity cost exists regardless of our feeling about that amount based on its relative value. So as you are making negotiations, as you're shopping for a better mortgage rate, as you're negotiating on a home or a car or furniture or thinking about any other big-ticket purchase— Remember to keep that in mind as well. And so that is key takeaway number two. Key takeaway number three, and the third example of how we often trip ourselves up, is that we try to numb the pain of paying. If you take cash out of your wallet to pay for something, you feel the loss of that money. That pain response is present because that loss is so visceral and tangible and right there in your hands. The pain of paying reflects this finding that when we pay for something, when we like hand over a $20 bill at a counter, it stimulates the same region of our brain as physical pain does. By contrast, if you use your Apple Watch to quickly tap for payment, you don't even feel it. The payment doesn't feel real and therefore doesn't hurt as much because now it's not cash out of your wallet. It's just an electronic buzz. It's just numbers on a spreadsheet. You're just moving around a few electronic digits, and that doesn't hurt as much, and so you're likely to spend more. What ends up happening in our modern world is instead of feeling that pain, we numb the pain. We use devices that make it so we don't actually feel it. So making that purchase more visceral, whether that means manually typing in your credit or debit card information when you're making an online purchase, rather than using an autofill feature, or whether that means compulsively checking your credit card balance and being hyper aware of what that number is so that any type of credit card payment that you make feels like an immediate loss of money rather than a promise to pay later, or whether that means literally paying in cash, at least for a day or two as an experiment, be aware of when you feel the pain of the loss of money versus when you don't and how that impacts the number of items that you buy, and the amount that you spend on those items. So that is key takeaway number three about ways that our brains just trip us up. And key takeaway and example number four is closely related, and it's the idea that we don't feel it as much when we separate the time that we make the payment from the time that we receive the service. Jeff illustrates this perfectly and succinctly in his example about Amazon free shipping. We just went through the shopping season, and I'm sure plenty of listeners used Amazon.com because it, they had free shipping. Well, no, they didn't have free shipping. They paid for Prime. They paid $100 a year for shipping. And even if you bought 100 items on Amazon, that's still a dollar an item. But it felt free. We see this with a lot of the spending decisions that we make in our daily lives. With a pay-as-you-go a la carte pricing model, you'd think carefully about each individual purchase But the more distance that you create between the time that you make that payment and the time that you actually get that Amazon free shipping item, the greater that time distance, the more it reduces our visceral feeling of the cost. And so when we notice that this is a tendency that we all have, well, then that makes us evaluate 
those types of purchases in a new light. And it allows you to reframe your spending decisions so that instead of saying, hey, my gym membership is $40 a month, you would instead say, hey, for the last six months I've been going to the gym on average four times a month, would I be willing to pay 10 bucks per visit? And when you reframe the question like that, it can often change the answer. So that is key takeaway number four. Finally, key takeaway number five with regard to ways that we make money mistakes is that we often overvalue the things that we're already familiar with. You're a Starbucks coffee drinker, but you could save a dollar a day if you started drinking Pete's that's right next door and even closer to your office than the Starbucks is, but you're not going to give up because the value just by being connected already is great. It's why loyalty programs work, because you've become connected to a product or service. We overvalue the items that we already own or even the items that we're already holding, and that can lead to two major consequences. Number one, if you list your home for sale, you might overprice it because you are overvaluing your emotional experience of living in that home. And as a result, you think that your house is worth more than it is. And the consequence of that, overpricing your home when you list it on the market, could lead to ultimate net loss if it results in a delayed sale or frequent price reductions that may signal to a buyer that you are an easy negotiation target. So that's one of the negative consequences that can come out of this. And then the other one is that you might be more prone to spending money on brands that you're loyal to, even when that brand loyalty no longer makes sense. So those are five ways that we trip ourselves up. But what are some of the solutions? Here are four. Number one, be specific and personal. When you think about the specific date of retirement, as opposed to retiring in 40 years, you think about where you want to live and if you have kids and what your health might be and what your hobby is going to be and you know what are your different items. The more you can make the future concrete, the more you connect to it and the more you're going to behave in a way that is responsible for that future self. When you're thinking about the future that you're planning for or saving for, make it incredibly concrete. So for example, instead of saying, I'm going to retire in 12 years, try saying, I'm going to retire on September 18th, 2032. And instead of saying, when I retire, I'm going to travel, try saying, when I retire, I'm first going to rent an Airbnb cabin on Lake Michigan for exactly three months, and I will start my mornings by waking up, going on a run, and then making a big breakfast from scratch and reading the news while I eat a long, luxurious breakfast. The more specific, the more personal, the more concrete those details, the more you know what your future self is striving for, and the more that can motivate you to change your decisions now for the sake of future you. So that's number one. Number two, hide money from yourself. Lower your own limits. If you think that you have X amount of money to spend because that's what's in your checking account, there's a decent chance that your spending will rise to the level that you think you're able to spend. By contrast, if you hide money from yourself by setting up automatic transfers from your checking account into investment accounts, retirement accounts, health savings accounts, regular savings accounts, and ideally if you place these accounts in different institutions so that when you log in to your checking account, you don't see the balance in your savings account, you don't see the balance in any other accounts, you see purely checkings and that's it, that's a way that you can hide your money from yourself and by extension, you're likely to not spend as much. Suddenly we've hidden $200 a week from ourselves 
And when we look at our spending each week, when we look at our ATM receipt that's on our checking account or our debit account, we're going to think we have less money to spend and we're going to slow down our spend and we're going to only hit that limit. And what we found is that people then don't spend as much. So that is solution number two. Solution number three, make your savings and investments as visible, as tangible, as visceral as your spending. We see spending, right? We see our neighbors, new clothes and new car. We see the good food that we're eating. Like, and by its nature, that drives us to be competitive, right? FOMO and keeping up with the Joneses. We compete on the stuff that we see. And that's stuff that feels measurable and tangible. We never really talk about or see savings or investing. That stuff is invisible. In fact, more than it being invisible, when you save money for the future, what do you see now? You see less. Keep a post-it note on your bathroom mirror in which you track your savings or your investments. Create a chart that shows the growth of your net worth and place it somewhere in your home where you can see it or make it the wallpaper on your phone or make it the photographic background on your laptop. Make the balance in your retirement account as visible, as right there in your face, as that fancy dining room table that you bought. And so making your smart decisions visible is solution number three. And finally, solution number four is to create an identity around saving and investing. And if you are part of the FIRE community, the financial independence early retirement community, then you are already doing this. There's some fascinating studies showing that when we find ways to make savings visible and tangible, to make the good choices obvious to us, it triggers like our identity. I think part of the success of like this fire movement is this identity, right? You've created this identity of I'm doing something now for my future. And if you can make the, find a way to make that visible and tangible, you're going to be more connected to making good financial decisions. And if you are not yet part of the community, or if you haven't interacted very much with other people in this community, you can head to affordanything.com slash community, where you can interact with other people in the community. You can form identity around shared goals, like if you want to start a side hustle, or you want to retire early, or you're trying to pay off debt, or you're trying to cross the seven-figure net worth mark. You can build tribes around these shared goals. You can talk about specific topics. All of that you can access for free at affordanything.com slash community. It's a great way to form a sense of identity around saving, investing, and building financial independence. And it's a great way to keep your head in the game and get encouragement from your peers. So again, that's affordanything.com slash community. I'll see you there. So those are... Nine key takeaways that we got from this conversation with Jeff Chrysler. Five common mistakes and four ways that we can save ourselves from ourselves. If you want a written list of everything that we've talked about, detailed notes that can jog your memory and serve as a reminder and help you implement this stuff and take action on it, you can get that for free by going to our show notes at affordanything.com slash episode 238. That's affordanything.com slash episode 238. While you're there, you can sign up for our email list. That will deliver our show notes for every episode straight to your inbox so that that way you will have notes on everything we've talked about. You'll have notes on the key takeaways and you have reference material that you can archive and come back to whenever you need it. So again, head to affordanything.com slash episode 238. You can check out our show notes and sign up for our email list. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend or a family member. That's the single best way that you can help other people improve their financial situation as well as spread the message of financial independence. Make sure that you hit subscribe or follow in whatever app you're using to listen to this podcast so that you won't miss any of our upcoming shows. Two weeks from now, we have an interview with David Stein about 10 questions that you should ask yourself before you purchase any investment. Big thanks to the sponsors for today's episode, Grove Collaborative, Rothy's, Gusto, and Blinkist. Shout out to them for making this episode possible. For a complete list of all of our sponsors, plus the promo codes, for any special deals that they're offering, you can find all of that at affordanything.com slash sponsors. That's affordanything.com slash sponsors. That's our show for today. My name is Paula Pant. You can find me on Instagram at Paula Pant, P-A-U-L-A-P-A-N-T. Thank you so much for being part of this community. And I will catch you next week. 